Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, Kels. You can be seated. Good afternoon again. We are wrapping up uh, Revelation chapter 3 this afternoon, looking at the last of Jesus' letters to the seven uh, different churches. In Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, we see Jesus addressing seven different types of churches. Uh, and I particularly love this passage of Scripture because it kind of feels like its own little teaching series in the midst of our Revelation series, hasn't it? Right? Like, and we've said this before, because while, while it's important to understand that these letters were written to very specific churches in a particular time and in a particular place, what Jesus has said to them can be applied really to any church and really to any Christian. And that's why each letter ends with, like in various ways, they, each letter ends with uh, something like, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a way to say, like, hey, what, what, what God has, what, what Jesus has said to these specific churches, let anybody who's listening in, let anybody who's reading on, who's sort of reading their mail, if it applies to them, let the Spirit uh, make that known to us. And so we can look at these letters as sort of case studies, case studies of all the different temptations that confront every Christian church and how the enemy might seek to destroy the church. And so through these seven letters, we're seeing seven different snapshots of Jesus' heart for his church. In the first letter of the church in Ephesus, if you remember, Jesus addressed a church that, that, that he said, hey, like, I see your works, and you guys look great, you know, like your doctrine's good, your deeds are good, but you've walked away from the love that you had at first. You've lost your first love, your love for Jesus. To the church in Smyrna, which was the next church, uh, Jesus challenged them to remain faithful 
in the midst of pressure and suffering. To the church in Pergamum, there was this corrupting tolerance going on that needed to be called out. To the church in Thyatira, they were being uh, unfaithful, spiritually adulterous, and so he calls them out on that. The church in Sardis, the biggest church of all of these, is what I like to call the church of the walking dead. I thought that was pretty clever. Um, but the church of the walking dead, because they, they look like they had life going on on the outside, but in the inside, they were spiritually dead. And then last week, we saw sort of the flip of that, right? The church in Philadelphia it was a small church, an unimpressive church by the culture's standards, where Jesus says that they're the most faithful of them all, and they'll be rewarded for that. But now we turn to the great and ancient city of Laodicea. And I think that this church of all the others, if we had to pick one, is the closest picture that we have to the modern church in suburban America where we live than any of these others. And it's a church that Jesus describes as lukewarm. Now, a few things to know uh, about Laodicea, if we want to uh, understand uh, some of the, the stranger uh, aspects of this letter. All right. A few things for us to know is that, one, uh, this is a, a church that was located just uh, near Philadelphia. Um, again, this isn't like the Philly that we know. This is like the original Philly. Uh, and so this is from uh, the ancient Near East Turkey area. Uh, so it's, it's pretty close to that church that we looked at last week. And the church, in, or rather the city of Laodicea, was known for three different things. Uh, number one, uh, it was known for its textile industry. Uh, they produced this like soft black wool that like everybody wanted to put in like their garments, right? Like everybody wanted this this soft black wool. Uh, secondly, they were known for their school of medicine that uh, specialized in different eye diseases. And and thirdly and lastly, they were known for their wealth. Like people who lived in Laodicea were were rich. They were loaded, and they and they were they were proud of that too. Um, they were proud of that. It, it was a, a, a mostly upper-class uh, community. They were the center of banking and finance in the area, and that made it sort of like this land of opportunity, right? Uh, think of like what New York City was about 100 years ago or what London was 100 years before that, right? Like if you wanted new opportunities, you move out to these great cities. And this community, Laodicea, was so rich that when the region was destroyed uh, by an earthquake in AD 60 and the Roman government offered to help them out, like all the different cities that got hit by this earthquake, uh, think of like what we call disaster relief today. When the Roman government offered to help out these different cities, the Laodiceans uh, were the only city that was like, we got this. You know, like, we'll repair our own city, and we're going to make it better than it looked like before. And it wasn't, it wasn't because they had high tax rates that could cover this. Like, you had people, wealthy people that, that lived there just donating their resources to rebuild their city. And so this was a, a community that was known for its wealth. But for the church that existed in Laodicea, when Jesus is writing to them, they, 
Jesus sees what's really going on, and he, he says, you know, on the outside, you seem rich, but on the inside, you are spiritually bankrupt. And then he's got some words uh, that he shares with them that we're going to unpack. But before we look at the passage, let us pray uh, and ask the Lord to bless our time. And Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful just to have this church family of brothers and sisters that we can do life together with, that we can just grow in our knowledge of you with. Um, we pray this afternoon for um, a church in our network, uh, All Souls Church uh, in Los Angeles that just replanted uh, this morning. They had their first soft launch service. Uh, and uh, we uh, pray for them, for Pastor Harvey and, and Justin and, and just their whole team. Um, God, that, that through their work uh, in the LA, uh, greater LA area, and specifically Burbank, where they're located, um, uh, through their faithful witness, we would see more and more people come to know you, love you, and worship you as God. And um, we are just grateful to be not only alongside them, but to be alongside uh, just countless other churches throughout the world and throughout history that can gather and open your word and be fed. And so, Holy Spirit, we, we ask that you would just nourish uh, our souls with the food of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Point number one, I want you to see from this passage that Jesus is ultimate truth. He is the ultimate truth. We'll start looking at this in, verses, uh, in verse 14, where uh, it says that, that, that to the angel of the church in Laodicea, remember, this is Jesus speaking. He's dictating this letter through the apostle John. And it says, to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And so basically, Jesus is introducing himself to this church. And if you remember throughout this series, the way that he introduces himself is different uh, and contextualized for each specific church. And so what that means is that the way he's introducing himself to the church in Laodicea, the words that he chooses, the phrases that he chooses are very important specifically for these people. All right. So let's unpack how he introduces himself. He says that these are the words of the amen or the amen. He calls himself the amen. It's kind of a strange thing to read at first, right? You're like, I thought amen's like what you say at the end of a prayer. But have you ever wondered why we do that? Like, why do we, why do we end prayers with the word amen or amen? What does it mean? Uh, it's the word amen literally means I agree that this is true. I agree that this is true, that this is certain. So when you're praying, whatever it is that you're praying, whether it's a praise to God, God, you're so amazing, you're, you're awesome, like you're confessing sin, you're, you're making a request, a petition, asking the Lord uh, to provide something or to do something on your behalf, whenever you're praying, when you end the prayer with amen, you're saying, yes, I am affirming and agreeing that everything that I just said and, and prayed for is genuine, true, and certain. 
And I believe that because of Jesus, that God hears this prayer from my heart. And so, in fact, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you, you know how like when Jesus is preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount, he says this phrase over and over again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you recognize that, that phrase? Like, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you know, like, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, right? Like, he says that over and over again uh, in the Sermon on the Mountain, other places in the Gospels. And in the original language, he's actually saying in the Greek there, amen, amen, I say to you. That's the sense of that word. And so, Jesus is saying that he is the amen. In other words, in him exists all that is true, all that is certain, all that is genuine. And then he doubles down on this as the verse continues. In verse 14 continues, he says, the faithful and true witness. So not only is he the amen, but he's the faithful and true witness. So this is about what Jesus speaks, right? Whereas the amen is about who he is, the faithful and true witness is about the things that he speaks. And so what that tells us is that every single word that Jesus says is both without error and without exaggeration, which is helpful to establish before Jesus corrects them. Because what happens when we get corrected by somebody? Or what happens when we get sort of convicted by God's word, right? If we're sort of responding in the flesh, then, then, then when we get corrected, how do we respond? We, we say things like, well, well, I didn't do it, right? Or, but that person started it, right? It's not really as bad as it looks. We start to, we start to try and like rationalize things. But no, right before he's about to call them out on the carpet, he says that he is the faithful and true witness. He is without error and without exaggeration. Jesus knows how the human heart likes to respond when we're corrected in areas that, that we don't want to be corrected in. And so here he reminds them that he is the faithful and true one. He's more than the source of ultimate truth. He is ultimate truth in the flesh. I want you to look at the rest of the verse. He also describes himself as the beginning of God's creation. This is a reminder of Jesus' deity, the fact that he is God. He's the beginning of God's creation, which doesn't mean that he's the first thing God created. Jesus was not created. He existed, pre-existed uh, for uh, eternity past. To say that he's the beginning of God's creation is to say that through him, all things were created. He is the creator of everything. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son, who is the Word of God, the Word of God is the one through whom all things were created. Colossians 1.16 says this. We don't have the slide for it, but in Colossians 1.16, it says that, for by him, speaking of Christ, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And why do we need to know this? Why is this relevant for what Jesus is about to say? It's because it kind of establishes on the front end that their only hope, 
The only hope the church in Laodicea has for how far they've strayed from their Lord Jesus is that the one who once made all things is the only one who can make them born again. He's the only one that can revive their faith that was once alive but is now looking dead. And so we see that Jesus is the ultimate truth. Next in our text, in verse 15, we see that lukewarm Christianity is therefore repulsive to Jesus, right? So now, see, Jesus establishes himself as the amen, the true and faithful witness, the beginning of all creation, right? He's, now that you know that about him, now that you know that everything that is certain and true about God exists in Jesus, now that you know that he never speaks without error, never speaks without exaggeration, and that he's our only hope for being made new, now he starts to correct them. And he says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither hot or neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, uh, which is ESV speak for, I wish that you were cold or hot, right? In verse 16, he says, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, just so it's clear, none of this is a compliment, right? Jesus is clearly correcting them. He's trying to uh, uh, lovingly criticize and correct them. This is not a compliment, right? Like a pattern that we've seen in these letters from Jesus to the seven churches is that he usually starts with a word of encouragement, right? Like after he says, I know your works, and then he starts to list some of the great things that they're known for, right? I think there's like one other exception. But most of the other churches... He, after he says, I know your works or I know your deeds, he starts to list what some of those good deeds are. And so where's the encouragement here in this text? It's just not there. It's not there. And that's because the people in this church profess the faith with their mouths, but they have so strayed from actual faithfulness. And he says he knows their works and that they're neither hot nor cold. Now, it's helpful to know something about the water system and how it worked in Laodicea. Some of you are thinking, why? <laughs> right? Why do I want to know about that? Uh, but it's helpful to actually understand what Jesus is saying here. Remember, Laodicea was this community where, where like, Laodicea was where it's at. People wanted to move there for the opportunities. They wanted to live there for the status, for the comfort, for the convenience, not unlike South Orange County. And so Laodicea was where it's at. It was a land of wealth, of comfort, of convenience, of opportunity. But they were known for all those things, but they were also known for having kind of like meh water, right? which you'd be like, that's weird. Why does anyone care about what the water looks like in Laodicea? But you need to understand that in a time and a place without bottled water, without sanitation plants, without filters and water softeners, what your natural water supply was like was a big deal back then, especially if everyone considered you to be like on top of the world, 
right? And Laodicea was, in more ways than one, seemed like they were on top of the world because they lived, they existed on a high plane, right? Like, think like a, a, a high plateau. That means that they had no direct water source. The two closest water sources were from one direction, from the north. There was a mountain range uh, where you, you could get, like, cold, refreshing water at. Right? Like, think of, like, the, the Rockies, you know, like how we're always trying to bottle water up there, right? Because it's, it's pure, uh, it's got healthy minerals in it, and, and, and it's, it, it's apparently refreshing. And from another direction, there were these, uh, there was hot water that could come from these hot springs, Hot springs that also have these minerals in it, uh, and, and people would use these hot springs um, to, the water from these hot springs to cook certain things. Uh, they'd use them for spas uh, and, for, and for healing, uh, like medicine and things like that. And so then how do you get water from either of those two places to Laodicea? Well, because the community at Laodicea was loaded, they built the most impressive irrigation system that existed in that region at that time. They had like, had like pipes and aqueducts and like this whole system that would get the water up to the plateau where Laodicea was. And so the big joke was that with all the money they had, they couldn't fix this one glaring problem. That by the time the water reached there, the hot water was just warm and the cold water was just warm. And because Laodicea, as you could imagine, was kind of like this, this bougie, first world type of community, the constant complaint of the people in Laodicea was, ugh, the water's so hard to enjoy, right? Like, people hated that they couldn't fix this, this water issue. How many of you guys are coffee drinkers, right? So you know that like when coffee is best, when it's either hot or cold, right? Like, I like my coffee either hot or cold. Uh, now, my wife's kind of smirking right now when I say that, because when we got married, uh, uh, she, she knew me to be a coffee guy, right? Like, I liked all the different coffee type stuff, like the, you know, third wave and all that. And so um, she was offering me, like, after we got married, to like, to, like, make me a cup of coffee. And so she made me coffee. But the thing is, is that I'm a wuss when it comes to my coffee temperature. And so she would make me this fresh cup of coffee, and I'd sip it and be like, oh, too hot. And so, like, I'd put it on the counter, uh, wait for it to cool down. But as I'm getting ready, I, like, forget that it's there. And then I leave for work, and then she comes by and sees, like, this, this almost full cup of coffee. And, like, he didn't drink his coffee. And that happened, like, so many days in a row where she's like, I think Chris is a fake coffee drinker, right? <laughs> like... She's like, she's like, I don't think he really likes coffee. I think he just wants to like coffee, which I was like, dude, how, how dare she challenge my probably sinful caffeine addiction, right? But I do love hot coffee. It's just that a fresh cup of hot coffee is usually too hot for me, and so I have to wait a few minutes to get it to my liking, and if I remember, then I'll have it at my liking. But what usually happens is I'll wait too long, the coffee gets lukewarm, and like, by that time, it's gross right? And at which point, you know what I do? I'm so smart, I turn it into iced coffee, right? Because if it's not going to be hot, right, like I'm at least going to have it cold. So then it's refreshing. 
In the same way, the people in Laodicea, they would have preferred if their water was either blazing hot or frigidly cold. But all they had was water that was lukewarm. And so when Jesus says this to them, he's saying, look, you know how every time you guys get some water and it's not hot, so like you can't make your tea, but, but it's also not cold and so it's not really refreshing to you? When you put the water in your mouth, you're just frustrated and complaining because you feel like it's just unpleasant in your mouth and you almost just want to spit it out. Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, he's like, you guys are just like that to me. You're just like that to me. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're just lukewarm. And so really, you're, 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 you're almost like useless to me. Almost makes me want to gag, spit you out. That's because the gods of Laodicea were not Jesus, but comfort and prosperity. And the issue wasn't so much about their lukewarmness, but their, what their lukewarmness revealed. That what they revolved their lives around, what they identified with most, was not the Lord who made them, loves them, pursues them, and saved them, but just simple comfort and prosperity. That leads us to point number three, that comfort and prosperity are false gods. Or we can look at it as they are false saviors. Jesus starts getting at this in verse 17 when he says, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. A harsh words, right? He's like, hey, you guys say that you're rich. You guys say you don't need anything, but you don't really realize how much you need. You don't realize how much help you actually need, that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea, they didn't, they didn't likely did not start out lukewarm. They likely weren't always this way. From what we know about church history is that this church was likely planted by the Apostle Paul, who wrote like most of the New Testament. It was either Paul or one of his students. But what ended up happening is because of their wealth, and because of their comfortable living, the gods of culture, which were comfort and prosperity, was really like what they oriented their lives around. And so the church in Laodicea, what, what, what ended up happening is even the Christians, because they were so immersed in their culture, they found themselves more driven by matters of comfort, by matters of convenience, by matters of prosperity, than they were by the gospel that saves. I don't want you to, to miss this point, that the reason that this church was so laid back at the time, that they were so indifferent about God, is because they weren't actively dependent enough on him. The reason they were so laid back about their relationship with the Lord is because they weren't actively dependent on him. 
they have this illusion of self-reliance. No one there was praying, give us today our daily bread. They're like, that's not us. We got our, we got our needs covered, right? I mean, like, I want you to think about where we live, right? Like, when was the last time that you had to pray, give us today our daily bread? I know that, like, many of us, we, 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 we don't, we don't, feel wealthy or, or rich, right? We tend to think more about the things that we don't have rather than the things that we do have. But look, that's, that's, that's part of the, the trick of living in an affluent place is that you really don't see how dependent you are you tend to think that you're somehow self-sufficient. And even if you're not satisfied with how much money and things you have, you just think like, man, one day I'm going to have that. One day I'm going to achieve that. One day I'll get there, and then I'll be good, right? There's still self-reliance there. And what that does is it creates this false image of security. Now, hardly any of us would look at a region like ours, South Orange County, the Saddleback Valley, and, and think, man, these are really needy people. These are really needy people, but, but you know, when God looks at a region like ours, that's exactly what he thinks. He peers over into the valley And he says, these are the needy ones. These are the spiritually bankrupt ones. You guys remember a couple months ago uh, when we talked about that passage about um, how difficult it is for the rich to, to, to enter the kingdom of God? He says, it's about, Jesus said it's about as easy as it is to get a camel through the eye of a needle, right? His point being is that it's near impossible to make somebody that who's, get somebody who's affluent and rich and wealthy into the kingdom of God. And then we kind of looked at this passage a little bit. I want you to think about that. Jesus said that it's about as easy for an affluent, wealthy, rich person to get into the kingdom of God as it is for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. The reason that that's so difficult is because of how easy it is for us to feel self-sufficient, to feel like, hey, we got this, to feel like, hey, you know, like my version of, of Christianity, my version of faith is going to be enough. And I don't, I don't really need to be dependent on God. I don't really need to lean on him. I don't really need to trust him because look how much I was able to accomplish on my own. Now, nobody's going to say it like that, but that's the posture of our hearts. That's the posture of our hearts. He looks, the Lord looks at a community like, uh, like, like ours and says, no, those are the ones who are difficult to save. Difficult to save without my supernatural power because, because they're just lukewarm. And some of us will we'll, we'll hear 
things like this. We'll read passages like this, and we'll be like, man, like I, I think I have to admit that I've been lukewarm in my faith. I think I've been lukewarm, but what's, what's wild is that some of us are just kind of okay with that. We're kind of okay with that. And that's, that's, that's what the American church looks like. That's what the wealthy, suburban, Western American church looks like, is we'll say things like, oh, I need more money, or I need more things. I need more approval from others. I need a bigger house. I need a new situation. We'll say things like that, but we'll be like, but God, I don't think I need more of him, right? I feel like I have enough of him in my life right now. But man, I need this, and I need that. My relationship with the Lord, it's good, right? I'm, I'm easily satisfied with where that's at. You're lukewarm, and you're comfortable with that. You know how crazy that sounds? I want you to read again what Jesus says in verse, or sorry, what, yeah, what Jesus says in verse 17 to the church in Laodicea. He says to them, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, what he's saying here is brilliant because he's really getting to the heart of the matter. He's starting to touch them where it really hurts, and he's doing it in love. I want you to remember that the city was known for three things. We mentioned them earlier, right? It was known for the textile industry, for the way that they made clothes, because the city was, was the source of like this black wool that was all soft and comfy, and everybody wanted it. It was really pricey, so it only kind of made its way into luxury clothing lines. Like this is your Armani or Versace or Prada, whatever it is that your brand is that you wish you could afford but, but can't. That's what they produced. They were also the home of one of the first medical colleges in the region. A medical college that was really involved in pharmaceuticals. And they were known for developing this powder that you could mix with water and put on your eyes. And it, it had sort of healing properties to it. And so if you were, if you were getting old uh, and um, starting to lose your sight, this, this, this eye ointment that you'd put on your eye would, would sort of put off blindness for, for longer. It would help heal your eyes and, and keep you from going blind longer. And they're also known, again, for being wealthy, for being rich and affluent. They're one of the richest commercial centers, banking and finance centers. They had stadiums that they would fill up uh, with recreation, gladiator games, things like that. And all of these things were donated to the city by the citizens. And so this church, this church in Laodicea, it had some wealthy members. They not only had large homes, they had vacation homes too that they'd use, that they'd share with one another. And so they're known for their clothing, they're known for their medicine, they're known for their wealth, and they're really proud of it. And what does Jesus call them? He says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They're poor, blind, and naked. The three things that they're known for the most, he just turns on its head and he's like, no, you don't even realize how messed up you are. 
Because you're so lukewarm, you're even blind to your own spiritual condition. You're boasting about how you're rich. You're boasting about how you have no need. You don't realize how wretched you are, how messed up and jacked up you are, how pitiable you are. The, man, when the creatures of the heavens look at you, they don't see an awesome glowing city that everyone wants to be like. They look at you in pity. They look at you as poor because you've got all these wonderful material things, but those things are just going to fade, rust, crack, be destroyed in the end. But real wealth, the stuff that lasts for eternity, you guys don't have any of that. And you're blind. You don't even see that you're in this place. And you're naked which is to say that your unrighteousness is exposed. And people with eyes to see can see it. Now, just to be clear, it's not a sin for a person to prosper or to be rich. A lot of the church planting efforts in the New Testament, specifically that we read about in the book of Acts, uh, was funded by some of the wealthiest uh, new converts in the ancient Near East. Lydia, who we read about in the book of Philippians, was originally from Thyatira. And you remember when we talked about that? She was like the original hashtag boss lady from Thyatira. She, she, she made these uh, 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 garments with purple cloth, uh, made this big business out of it, and, and eventually moved to Philippi and helped fund the church there. So look, it's not a sin for a person to prosper or to be rich, but the issue here was that their wealth in Laodicea had seduced them. It had seduced them, and they were in love with it. It gave them this feeling of superiority, of self-importance, of self-sufficiency that started to distort not only the way that they see the world, but the way that they even saw themselves. And they became blind to their own spiritual condition. They were economically prosperous, but spiritually bankrupt. And the worst part is they didn't even know it. They didn't even know it. Because they're products of a culture that's only concerned with the outside, even their relationship with Jesus had gotten to the point where it was only skin deep. They were so in love with the outward appearance of affluence that they couldn't even see that their own spirituality, their own Christianity was superficial and empty. No real substance. You see, when, when you're blessed and your affluence is taken for granted, it can lead you to this place of spiritual indifference because you no longer have to praise things like, give us today our daily bread. When influence is taken for granted, it leads you to that place of spiritual indifference where heaven and God's kingdom, they don't feel like home to you because you're like, this right here is a good enough paradise for me. And what ends up happening is Christ is not who we're living for. But comfort is, affluences. This congregation was a prestigious congregation. 
in a great community, but because they had grown indifferent in their faith, their presence in the community was no, no longer making a difference for the gospel. They were as useless as lukewarm water. They had no healing properties. They were not refreshing. They were just kind of meh. I think this is a good gut check moment for us. I want you to ask yourself two questions. Has our culture of affluence blinded you from your own spiritual condition? The fact that you've never had to pray, give us today our daily bread, has that affected you to the point where it's blinded you from your own spiritual neediness? And secondly, do the things that you make much of in life, do they point people to Jesus or to the false gods of comfort and prosperity? What is it that other people know you for as far as what drives you, what compels you to wake up each morning, to put one step in front of the other? The people who truly get to know you, right? Like, what is it when they see what drives you, when they see what compels you, does your life point them to Jesus or does it point them to the false gods, gods of comfort and prosperity? I think the good news for us this afternoon is for us to remember that there is somebody who can make us new. There's someone who makes us new, and that's point number four, that we need to return to the one who makes us new. Jesus says, I counsel you, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See how clever Jesus is getting here? He's saying to them, stop buying from the market of the world and buy from me. Don't buy from the world, buy from me. He's being winsome with how he's presenting the gospel here. He's looking at their cultural context and he's finding a way to communicate to them in a way that they will understand in a way that will grab them. And so he compares himself to a merchant who would like do the rounds to sell his product and try and outdo the competition. Jesus is saying to them, he's like, church in Laodicea, don't buy from those other suppliers. Don't buy from comfort. Don't buy from affluence. Don't buy from prosperity and convenience. Don't buy from those other suppliers. Don't buy from the God of those things. Don't purchase from the God of prosperity. No, forget those other suppliers and buy from me. Those other supplenders can't supply for your needs. Not only can I supply for your needs, but my supply never runs out. Do you see his gracious pursuit? Do you see his loving pursuits? You see, sometimes I think like when we read things like this, like some of us have the gift of encouragement, right? We have the gift of encouragement. And so we'll read things like this and you're like, man, like 
Jesus is kind of being hard, right? Like, like why doesn't he have anything nice to say? Why doesn't he say anything nice to them? But sometimes, sometimes there's not much nice to say because there's really nothing there. And sometimes things are so bad that the most loving thing that you can do for somebody is speak the truth and love to them. But notice his gracious pursuit. He doesn't just speak the truth in love and love and be like, all right, peace out. Figure that out now. No, he says to them, come to me. Buy from me. They're poor. He reveals that they're poor. But then he also reveals that he's the one who gives true gold that makes us spiritually wealthy. Things that, ru- that moth and rust can never destroy. He reveals to them that they're naked in their unrighteousness, but also that he is the one who clothes us with his righteousness. He revealed to them that they are spiritually blind, but we also see that he's the one who can illuminate their eyes to see what is true and good and beautiful and what is not, to see our real spiritual condition. Everything that this church boasted about previously were just counterfeit commodities. But here Jesus is calling these Christians to return to him. He's graciously inviting them back, calling them to spiritual renewal, telling them everything that you need is found in me. The point is that humbly returning to Jesus is what will reignite these Christians, not only in their zealous faith, but in their Christian testimony before the world. Returning to Jesus is what will reignite their faith, put them on fire for the world to see so that they'll make a true difference. A number of you were baptized at King's Cross Church. If you remember when we do baptism, we'll say that it's a symbol of being dead to your old self and rising to walk in newness of life. You rise to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism is a symbol of. And in the Bible, we're told to remember our baptism regularly. Remember that you've died to your old self and that you've risen to walk in newness of life. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to remind these Christians to return to him. Hey, remember, these things that like you're living for now, remember that that part of you died before. You were made new. Walk in that. Embrace that. Follow that. In verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. You see, this is the reason that Jesus is passionate about correcting these churches. He loves them. He says, those whom I love, I'm going to reprove and correct. It's those that I love that I'm going to discipline. And so please be zealous. Uh, This is about having a new habit and acknowledging Jesus' lordship in your life. And he says, repent. In other words, do it now. Turn now. Just come back to like arms are wide open. Come back to me. So then how do a people that are described as poor, blind, naked, and, uh, and naked, how do they suddenly <coughs> mature into a life that points 
people to Jesus. <coughs> it's only by the result of communion with him. That's why he says these famous words in verse 20. When he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, some people have interpreted this verse as an evangelistic one, right? They'll say this at crusades. They'll say like, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. Are you going to let him in, right? Some people have interpreted this as, you know, this, is, this, is, this verse is talking about letting Jesus into your heart. But if you consider the context of this verse, this verse is actually an invitation for the church. It's an invitation for Christians who need to renew their devotion to Jesus. For Christians who have oriented their lives now around comfort than than they have around Christ. It's an invitation for churches that have dishonored the name of Christ by pandering to what people want rather than to what Jesus wants. Jesus is standing at the door of churches knocking, less like a stage four clinger wondering if you're ever going to let him in, and more like the husband in Song of Solomon who knocks at his lover's door. See, when he said those words in verse 20, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That verse hit differently back then than it does for us today. Because to invite someone to share a meal in your home was a big deal. It was a big deal. Nobody did that before Acts 2. Christianity started the whole movement of inviting somebody into your home for a meal. Nobody else did that. To invite someone to share a meal in your home, by and large, the culture around the world, like they, they, they saw that as an extreme gesture of love and intimacy. That's why people were so offended that Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. They're like, how could you do that? How could you sit at their table? Because to do so was a promise of intimate friendship with Jesus. And so when Jesus says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in to eat with him and he with me. That is the promise of intimate friendship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The closest thing to heaven that we will ever experience in this life. Jesus condescends to knock on the door of this church. Will you respond? Will you respond and renew your relationship with him? Maybe you're hearing this and your defenses are going up. You're thinking like, just because I serve in a lukewarm way and prioritize church and my faith in a lukewarm way, like, that doesn't mean that I'm lukewarm. I want you to consider, can you, can you honestly stand before the Lord's throne and say that honestly? 
Can you say that before him with integrity? For those that admit their spiritual neediness and return to him in faith, the promise of Jesus, point number five, is that the faithful will reign with Jesus for all eternity. Verse 21 says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now that language should be familiar to us by now because he said this many times in the letters to the churches. What he's saying is that the one who conquers, the one who conquers in this situation refers to the one who refuses to have their life driven by comfort and prosperity. Which that person from the perspective of the world, a world that celebrates external expressions of affluence, the world looks at that as foolishness. But from the perspective of heaven, this is the way to the throne of God. That's what verse 21 says, that Jesus shares his victory with us on the throne. We overcome just like he overcame. We persevere in faithfulness so that in the end, we will reign with him in victory. And as we'll see from this point forward in the, in the book of Revelation, we're going to continue with this imagery of a throne. A throne on which sits a king who rules. That king is Jesus. And we, church, we belong to him. And if we trust him, if we follow him, if we repent of our sin against him, then he's a king who gives us life. He dies for us so that we might live for him. The one who created all things rose from the grave so that he could renew all things. He rose to usher in the kingdom where our sins are forgiven, where our eternity is altered, and we can not only eat at his table, but sit on his throne, where we'll enjoy a truly lavish life in his presence for all eternity. And you see, in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ only, there are greater riches than the stuff that this world has to offer. Greater riches than all the stuff that you own and all the stuff that you want to own. There's a lukewarm road that the Bible talks about that is broad, that many people are going to walk down, but it leads to destruction. But there are few the faithful few who are going to find the narrow road. We're going to push back against the flow of culture and say, I see where the real treasure is. I see where the real beauty is found. It's found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus. And I've left everything to follow him. I belong to him. I am his and he is mine. And as the last verse says, let those who have ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.